And make your way to a seat. Hopefully you all have the handout for tonight. If not, there's some on the music stands in the back. There's pens back there if you need those. But this is week number five as we go through the semester of the attributes of God. And I'm so glad you're back. I appreciate William teaching last week. I was away at the Sing Conference with Keith and Kristen Getty. And this year it's called Sing the Great Commission. Justin was there too. And just an encouraging week just to think about music in the church and how the music we sing can help us have our hearts for the nation. So it was a great week, but I'm thankful to be back with you guys. I hope as you heard last week about God's truthfulness and faithfulness, that's been a source of hope for you, a source of comfort this week to realize you can trust the promises of God. And there's a lot to chew on from that. I hope you have been thinking on that and finding hope in that this week. Now tonight we return to one of the attributes that makes our brains hurt. So this is, is we have the common theme of what we've been studying so far. And one of the themes we've seen throughout so many of these attributes is the idea that God has no limits. We saw that when we saw God's independence, God needs nothing. So he has no limitations. He doesn't need anything from anyone or any source. We saw that in his eternality, he has no limits with regard to time. And so that's also different than our experience. We're so finite. We're so limited. And so I have a quote from A.W. Tozer on the front there for you. I want you to see tonight as we think about the infiniteness of God in a different area. Tozer says, God is infinite. That's the hardest thought I will ask you to grasp. You cannot understand what infinite means. But don't let it bother you. I don't understand it, and I'm trying to explain it. Infinite means so much that nobody can grasp it. But reason nevertheless kneels and acknowledges that God is infinite. We mean by infinite that God knows no limits, no bounds, and no end. What God is, he is without boundaries. All that God is, he is without bounds or limits. And so we've seen that again with God not needing anything, being independent. We see that not being bound by time. He's eternal tonight. We see that God has no limits when it comes to space. I don't think of NASA when I say space. Think about spatial realities. This is what we talk about God's omnipresence. We see this reality in Psalm 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the, light, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God has no bounds when it comes to locations. Turn the page and let's jump in tonight. We're talking about God is omnipresence. Like I just said a minute ago, omnipresence is an attribute which reminds us that God has no limits. So how do we define God's omnipresence? Well, this is the Latin word omni means all, presence being location. God is everywhere. Now, again, that's hard to explain. This is one of those that makes our brain hurt. So you'll see some different ways people have tried to explain the omnipresence of God. James Boyce, he was one of the founders of Southern Seminary where I did my studies. He said, God is not confined to space any more than he is measured by time. He is present, here's the key word for omnipresence, he is present everywhere. He is present in one and the same time, everywhere. There's no limitation, God is everywhere all the time. John Todd, an 1800s pastor, said God is everywhere, same word again, present at all times and in all places. John Frame, a theologian, said this does not mean merely that God is omnipresent in space, but that he transcends space altogether. So we're talking about omnipresence, it's not just God is everywhere. He transcends everywhere. He's beyond everywhere. He's not contained by it, as we'll see in just a minute. A.W. Tozer said, God is close to everywhere. He is near to everything and everyone. He is here. So I love how Tozer brings that relational aspect. This is not just a theoretical attribute of God, 
This has a lot of real-life applications we'll see in a minute. God is near. He is right here with us because he is omnipresent. And perhaps most, most weeks I like Wayne Grudem's definition the best. You heard CJ mention that Sunday. I'm a big Wayne Grudem fan. Grudem said, God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present in every point of space. And notice this, with his whole being. This goes back to the first week, the unity of God. God is fully himself at every point in space. Yet, God acts differently in different places. So God is fully everywhere all the time, but he can choose to respond to situations differently. He can choose to initiate things differently according to his purposes. So let me try to simplify all that down. Here's our definition for tonight. In regards to space, God is unlimited. He is present everywhere. So when we talk about space, not just NASA, when we talk about space, there's your spatial dimensions in every conceivable spatial dimension, whether it's in the galaxies or here in this room or everywhere we are on earth. Everywhere, God is fully there. In regards to spatial realities, God is unlimited. He is present everywhere. Now, when people talk about the omnipresence of God, there's two terms that get used, and here's our big terms for the night if you're not familiar with them. It's the words eminence and transcendence. To be eminent means to be near to all. So we say that God is eminent. He's near. He's here. It's the experience of God's closeness to us. But God is also transcendent. To be transcendent means to be greater than something. God transcends all spatial realities. He's bigger than space. And so God is both near and bigger than everywhere. So he's imminent and he's transcendent. He is both. And we'll see in a minute why both of those are important to understand who God is. I love how Mark Jones says this of it. And you see, oh, sorry, you see there, this attribute is incommunicable. This is something we don't understand ourselves because we are finite. We are limited. I can't clone myself and go do two things at once. It'd be very efficient on the schedule, but we can't do that, right? This is an experience that we will never have being omnipresent. We will, even for all eternity, we'll be limited to one place at a time. So this is incommunicable to us. This is how Mark Jones describes that. God is infinite, but we are finite. Finite creatures exist in space. We are somewhere in space, but not at the same time somewhere else. Unlike us, God is not bound in any way, whether by time or by space. If he were he would not be God. So as we try to make our brains hurt and understand God's omnipresence is so different than us, let's dig into what this attributes means. So several things for us to understand this. First of all, we need to remember that God created space. And maybe I should say God created spaces, because when I hear the word space, I can't help but thinking of NASA and the Hubble telescope, which is part of it, but spaces includes this room, everything on earth. So God created all spatial realities. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Now, that means there was a time, which we really can't call that because there was no time yet. There was a time when there was no space. There was a time when there was no spatial realities. There was not even a succession of moments. A succession of moments of time came about when God created. That means space, again, spatial realities, height, depth, width, length, all these things we consider in spatial terms came about when God created. So if you're tr trouble sleeping tonight, you can think on that about the time when there was no time, when there was no space, in that no time time. So you let your brain hurt on that one a little bit tonight. Now to help our brains hurt on that a little bit, look at what Wayne Grudem says. He says, God is a being who exists without size or dimensions in space. In fact, before God created the universe, there was no matter or material, so there was no space either. Yet God still existed. Where was God? He was not in a place that we could call a where, for there was nowhere or space, but God still was. And so Again, if you want to let your brain hurt tonight, think on that as you're trying to go to, to sleep. There was a time when there was no time, and there was a time before time when 
There was no space. There was nowhere for God to be because there was no time for him to be in. It was just God, no space, no time, nothing, just God. And God made all these realities that we experienced in the six days of creation that we've been seeing in recent weeks on Sunday mornings. The second reality this attribute means, that means that all spaces belong to God and are under his sovereign rule. If God makes it all, then it's all under his control. There's nothing that's outside of his control. He is the creator of it all, and so it's all under his control. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God, notice this word, belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, with all that is in it. So God made it, and he owns it. You've probably heard the quote, I think it's from Abraham Kuyper, who says, there's not a square inch in any realm of the universe over which Christ does not proclaim mine. He made it all. He made space. He made time. He is sovereign over every spatial reality because he created it. So turn the page. It's not just he made it. He's still sustaining it. The reason why we have measurable space still is because it's still being upheld by his own hand and his sovereign power. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means if he wasn't holding together, gravity would stop working. The reason our planet's still circling the sun, the reason we're still spinning on the orbits that we're doing, the reason the gravity still works and time still is a succession of moments is because he is still holding. If he took his hand off of it, it would all fall apart. The earth not only was made by him, it is sustained by him. That means he is sovereign over all spatial realities here. This is John Frame here is talking about the transcendence of God, how he's bigger than all of this. He said the point is not that God is excluded from space, rather he sovereignly controls it. That means there's that picture I showed you, you see it right there several weeks ago, of these two galaxies colliding. He's sovereign over that. He appointed for that to happen. God, everything that's happening in space, including the space of this earth, are under his control. Number three, this means God in his fullness is everywhere. He is everywhere. There's nowhere that God is not, and he's fully there in every place. Jeremiah 23, this is God rebuking the prophets who thought that their thoughts were hidden from people and from God. And notice you see both here the nearness of God and the transcendence of God. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth declares the Lord. So do you see here both the eminence of God? Am I not a God at hand? He's right there with them. He sees their thoughts. He's right there with them. But here's the transcendence of God also. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The nearness of God, the bigness of God, all in one verse. And it reminds us here that God is in his totality, is everywhere all of the time. I love how James Boyce says it. He fills it, space, with his essence. He fills it not as part to part, but the whole infinite deity is entirely undividedly present at each point of creation in each moment of time. And so God is fully in all of his attributes everywhere all the time in all of history. That means in all that vastness of outer space that we know so little about, right there in that picture of the two, that's remember two of 100,000 million galaxies in the midst of all that God is there. God's not like looking from a distance. God is there in the middle of those galaxies colliding. God is here with us now. There's no place in all of the created experience of anything where God is not. He's not looking from a distance. He is fully everywhere in that those galaxies colliding and right here with us now everywhere all of the time. And that's possible because as we saw two weeks ago, he is a spirit. And though his fullness is everywhere, number four, God cannot be contained by any space. It doesn't matter how big God is, it cannot contain him because God has no size. 
right? Size indicates borders, right? Size indicates limitations, you know? We've been wrestling with the fact that this room is not quite big enough, right? Size limitation on Sunday mornings. There's size limitations. God has no size. He has no borders. He has no limits anywhere. I love how it's said in 1 Kings chapter 8. This is King Solomon when he's building this massive temple for people to worship the Lord. This is what it said. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is not contained to any of those points in space. He's everywhere all the time, but he's not restricted. He's not bound to where any point can contain him. Isaiah shows it as well. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you could build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So there's no space that can contain God because he transcends it all. He fills all of space, but yet he's bigger than all of space. He transcends it all. Mark Jones says it this way. As a spirit, his, omni- his omnipresence implies the immensity. Now, let that word sing in the immensity of his essence. So some people even call this attribute the immensity of God. I stick with omnipresence. I think it communicates a little bit better, but you will see some authors speak of God's immensity. They're speaking of the same thing here. I love how Tozer says that God's being does not dwell in space. He swallows up space. That God is so infinitely big, even again, those 200,000 million galaxies cannot contain him. He is so immense, nothing can contain him. There's an image to help that I think helps us understand that. And again, anytime we use an image to describe God, I get very nervous very quickly. Because most images have significant limitations. And so with trepidation, I share an image with you that I think helps us grasp this. Again, recognizing the, it breaks down and it's not perfect. So you, you see the picture there of the bucket. If you go to the beach, if you like to go to the beach to rest, and you see the ocean, and I mean, our minds can't even comprehend the vastness of the ocean. As far as you can see, you get up on the 20th floor of the hotel, we can see further, and there still just keeps going and going. There's so much water out there. If you take your little bucket, or let's say you take your Orange Home Depot bucket, right, and you scoop it in the ocean, is the ocean in the bucket? Yes, but does the bucket, but does the, is the ocean, can the ocean fill that bucket? Yes, but can that bucket contain all the ocean? No. And that's a small picture for us about God. It take all the universe, all those 200,000 million galaxies. Is God present in all that? Yes. Can those 200,000 million galaxies contain God? No, because he's transcendent. He's bigger than all of those galaxies. If God can be contained in one place, he would not be God because he, he would have borders and limitations. As Tozer said it here on the bottom of page three, if there were any borders to God, if there are any place where God is not, then that place would mark the confines of the limits of God. And if God had limits, God could not be the infinite God. And so God is so immense, he cannot be contained at any point in space. Now turn the page. That, the reality, the balance to all this as we think about these things is number five, yet God acts in different ways at different places and times. So we've said at the beginning, the unity of God. This is important. God is fully all of his attributes all the time. He's not partially wrathful in this era and partially merciful in this one. He's fully merciful, fully wrathful, fully just, fully holy, fully loved all of the time. But he expresses different actions in different situations according to his sovereign will. And we'll wrestle with this more next week when we talk about God being unchanging. But for now, look at what we say here from A.A. A. Hodge. As to essence and knowledge, his presence is the same everywhere and always. As to his self-manifestation and the exercise of his power, his presence differs endlessly in different cases and degree and mode. Thus God is present to the church 
as he is not to the world. So God is everywhere all the time. And so if you go to an atheist country in Asia, God is there. There's nowhere that God is not. But the experience of God's presence can be very different when you're now in a house church in that Asian country with a bunch of believers worshiping the Lord. God is present everywhere in the middle of that communist government building. God is there, but, his, but how he manifests his presence can be very different when he, those believers are huddled in that room. God is present everywhere, but he acts differently in different places and different times. So, for example, God can be present to bless. Now, this is what we as believers normally think of. We talk about God being near and wanting the presence of God, but really saying we want to experience the blessings of God. This is how the psalmist describes it. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But the reality check is for everyone in the world, God's presence doesn't bring joy to them because they don't know him. They're in rebellion to him, but for us as believers who know who are forgiven, God's presence with us gives us such joy and hope the rest of the world does not experience. But because God is fully present everywhere and is fully all of his attributes, he can choose to also be present, not to bless, but to judge. You see this in Micah chapter 3. This is Israel. Where they're, making the, they're making the mistake of thinking that God would keep blessing them even if they were sinning. They kind of had this presuming upon God's grace, we might say today. Micah 3. <coughs> Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. His heads give judgment for a bribe, as priests teach for a price, as prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. That is a sobering reality because we can't presume that God's just going to be happy with sin. God is present and he is present in his fullness of all of his attributes. Sometimes he chooses to judge even his people for their sin. You see this in Amos 9 as well. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb into heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. You see the image God is giving to his people? He is omnipresent. But if we presume on his grace, that omnipresence is not something that we should take lightly. He can choose to judge in any of those situations. And I wonder how often we are like Israel, presuming upon God's grace, winking at sin, and missing the absolute holiness of God and what his omnipresence and his holiness means together when we think about him being with us. Now, last thing in trying to unpack what this attribute means, number six here, understanding this truth avoids two errors. It's the errors of deism and there's a pantheism. Now, if you're not familiar with these terms, deism is the view that God made everything, but then he just kind of stepped back and let it run. He's not involved anymore. It's the image of a clockmaker who makes a clock and then passes off to just keep running, but he's not involved with it anymore. And there's people who believe that, but if you embrace deism, you're denying God's imminence, that he's still right here with us. His omnipresence means he's not a distant God who made the world and then left. He's still right here very much with us. The other error it corrects is the error of pantheism. That's the view that everything is God. Now, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but back in the 1980s, when I would travel with my family, we'd stop at Hard Rock Cafes, and I think those are still around. And back in the 80s, when you go to Hard Rock Cafe, they would give out matchboxes, which I don't think restaurants give those out anymore, but they did in the 80s, because it was the 80s. And on every matchbox I'd get when we travel, it would say 
all is God on everything. They were promoting pantheism through the Hard Rock Cafe back in the 80s. I remember looking at that thinking, that's so weird, but it was pantheism. Everything is God. That tree is God. That chair is God. You're God. Everything is God. But pantheism denies the transcendence of God. That yes, God is everywhere, but God is not that chair. He is bigger than that chair. He's bigger than this room. He's bigger than the galaxy. He is transcendent. But when you embrace his omnipresence, that he's transcendent, but yet imminent. When he's greater than everything, but near, it guards us against either one of those wrong thinkings about who God is or his nature. So that's what his omnipresence means. That raises several questions for us. So if God is everywhere, number one, what's so special about heaven? If God is everywhere, why do we talk so much about longing for heaven? Because heaven is a real place. Deuteronomy chapter 26, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel. Psalm 11, 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So what are we talking about when God, if God is everywhere, why is heaven special? Heaven is special because it's a special revelation of God. It's in heaven that we will get to see God with unveiled faces. We will get to see him in ways we've never experienced. His glory is especially displayed in heaven. So heaven is special because we get to experience God unlike we've ever experienced God in this life. This life is just a foretaste. So yes, God is just as much here as he's in heaven. He's not more in heaven than here. God is just as much in this room as he's in heaven. But there's a greater revelation of his glory in heaven than we get to experience here. So it is good for us to long for heaven, to long to see God in the fullness of his glory and his greatness and to experience that forever. A.A. Hodge said, He is present in heaven in the manifestation and the communication of gracious love and glory. And friends, that's what we get to await and long for. But number two, and this is an important corrective, a lot of believers get this one wrong. If God is everywhere, is he in hell? So many Christians have the mindset that hell is the absence of God. But that's not the case. God is omnipresent. Everything he created, heaven and hell, the earth, the galaxies, he is present everywhere. Hell is not just some prison people go to and watch TV and read magazines all day long, right? This is not just people having a party doing what they want to do, you know, with God not there. Hell is very much the presence of God. Notice what it says here. Hell is not the absence of God. Rather, it's the presence of God as they are pouring out his wrath with no mediator available between those souls and him. That's a whole different understanding of hell than a lot of people have. There's not a devil with a pitchfork in a cartoon and people just goofing off playing, telling jokes. This is, as one of my seminary professors described it years ago, he said, hell is you're backed into a corner with all the holy wrath of God being poured out on you and you have nowhere to go and you're trapped for all eternity like that. It is a sobering reality for us. A. Hodge says, thus he is present in hell in the manifestation, the execution of righteous wrath. Now we see this in scripture in a glimpse. Now when we look at scripture, we see the term shale. It's talking about death and the grave. But I think we can understand from that as well with God's omnipresence, the reality of him in hell. Psalm 130, Psalm 139 here. You see, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Now here's the contrast. Make my bed in shale in the grave in hell. You are there. And then Job says, shale is naked before God. As Mark Jones says, in hell, God's presence toward the damned terrifies and torments them. God is as present in heaven as he is in hell, but he exhibits his presence differently in each place. Friends, that reality is a sobering reminder for us. This should drive us to our knees in praying for the lost we know, for family members, for friends. Again, hell is not annihilation. Hell is not a party. Hell is a real place where you're in the presence of the, a holy God 
being dealt, being penalized for all your sin for all eternity, backed into a corner with no mediator to help you. That should drive us to not only pray, but to share Christ with the lost. Now, number three, third question. If God is everywhere, why does the Bible say he can be far away or he can be near? You've seen this throughout Scripture, right? Genesis 28, Jacob awakes from his sleep and he says, surely the Lord is in this place. Okay, well, why is he saying this? Because surely God is here now. God was with you at home. God was with you when you're driving here. Why is Jacob saying this? And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Or in the Psalms, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. <clears throat> but for me, it's good to be near God. And may the Lord God my refuge. I may tell of all your works. Or Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Or James 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if God is everywhere, why does the Bible say he is near or he is far? These are images for us about whether we're experiencing the judgment of God or the favor of God. When we talk about God being near, we're talking about his experience of his presence with us, his blessings with us. God is omnipresent, so there's not a time that God is literally far from us. If he's in hell, if he's here, if he's in the presence of a sinner, of a sinner who is sinning, he is there everywhere all the time. This is whether or not we're experiencing the judgment of God or the blessing of God. In addition, this is a call in Scripture for us to pursue God. Being far from God is we're not thinking about God. God hasn't moved, we've moved. Being near to God, God hasn't moved, but it's us drawing near to him. So this is imagery and scripture from our human language to help us understand not only the justice and the mercy of God, but language to call us to pursue knowing the omnipresent God even more. Now let's bring all this together. I think the key truth for you and I as we think about the omnipresence of God is this thing in blue in the middle of page five here. We cannot escape God. Like if you want one key truth, no one on this planet can escape God no matter how hard they try. We've already read Psalm 139 on the front page. We already read from Jeremiah 23. That was back on page 3. We cannot escape God. God is everywhere all the time. There's several implications of that for us. Number one, this means God sees every sin you and I commit. I think we forget this so often. This means God sees the sins that no one else sees, the sins of our thoughts and our minds that no one sees but us. God himself sees because he's right there. He's right there. He's in us and he sees even our thoughts. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I love how Tozer says it. He wasn't talking about the context of sin, but when I read this, I'm like, this is such a reminder we need. God is always nearer than you may imagine him to be. God is so near that your thoughts are not as near as God. Your breath is not as near as God. Your very soul is not as near to you as God. So your thoughts are not any further away than God is. And so he sees your thoughts. He sees your affections. He sees all that you are thinking. And so, friends, when we sin, we are bringing a holy God in the presence of sin, even if no one else sees it. So God sees every sin. That's one truth of his omnipresence. The second truth, though, is he, that means he is with us no matter what we face. Hebrews 13, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if a missionary is arrested in a communist country, God is right there in the jail cell with them. When you're facing, if you're facing cancer and you're sitting in a hospital room, not sure if you're going to make it tomorrow, God is in the hospital room with you. If you're going down the road and someone smashes into you, God is there with you. No matter what you face, good or bad, God is omnipresent. He is there with you all of the time. I love how it says Timothy George, he was one of the dean at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham before he retired. <coughs> he said this, the doctrine of God's omnipresence 
It's one of the most comforting truths in all the Bible. It reminds us that we can never outrun the power and the providence of our great Lord. God is equidistant to his people wherever they are. He hears their prayers and receives their worship, whether it's offered in giant cathedrals or tiny country churches. In the great urban centers of Europe and North America, in the steamy jungles near the equator, in the frigid isolation of the North Pole, every place is full of his glory. So if you somehow got stranded in the middle of Antarctica, God is right there with you. You know, there's nowhere you can go to escape his presence. If you saw the news this week of the American scientist who got lost in a cave overseas, and he was like hours down, like eight hours down in a cave when he got injured, and they had to try to pull him out. God was there. There's nowhere, even in the depths of those caves, that God is <coughs> not. He is there no matter what we face. That means, number three, this truth gives us hope in trials. So you've heard me say it so many times. God has never promised a trial-free life pain-free life or an easy life, but he has promised he will be with us no matter what we face. I love how Jesus said it, talking to his disciples, and they were so fearful in John's gospel. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you. Here's the nearness of God, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. This is for he dwells with you and will be in you. It can't get any nearer than that. God's nearness is with you and in you. He says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So whatever trial you face, God is with you in every circumstance. The omnipresence of God also means, number four, it gives us strength to obey. When it says hard commands of holiness or the hard commands of the great commission, the fact that God is omnipresent means he doesn't say, okay, go obey me. Take the gospel of that nation. Obey me. You know, put off that sin, now go try it in your own strength. He is right there with us when we are fighting those temptations or striving to do what he's called to do. It gives us strength to obey. Think about how he says this in the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Now that's hard, but do it of all nations. Now that's even harder, right? Take people very different than you and disciple them. Make followers of Christ and all that. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Okay, that is impossible on our own, but what does he say right after that? And behold, stop, take notice, I am with you. I'm imminent, I'm right there with you. The transcendent God is imminent with you as you're seeking to make disciples, as you're seeking to obey, as you're teaching others to obey. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God's omnipresence is very practical. It's not just a coffee shop discussion. It's hope when we're in trials it's reality check when we're struggling with temptation, and it's a strength we need to be able to obey him in all circumstances. And that means the last one here, friends. When we forget God's omnipresence, we're setting ourselves up to fail. When we forget that God is with us, we are setting ourselves up to fall. The reality is while we affirm this attribute, we'd all say, yes, yes, we believe that God is omnipresent. We don't live like we believe God is omnipresent so much of the time. This is what you hear me say often, the, the difference I've been wrestling with this year between our confessional theology and our functional theology. We give the right answer, God's omnipresent, but am I acting like God is on functionally in my life? Am I living out what I confess to believe on this? I love what Mark, John, Mark Jones says. As Christians, we sometimes fall into the realm of practical atheism. Let that sink in. We sometimes fall into the realm of practical atheism, affirming. So we're saying with our mouths, like, in our minds, affirming God with our minds and denying him with our hearts. What is worse, Christians commit certain sins in the presence of God they would never dream of doing in the presence of others. Imagine that. God's presence has less influence on us than that of mere humans. Think about the sins of the thoughts in our minds that we would never say out loud 
Think about the sins that we commit that no one else sees, that we would be mortified if other people knew about. If we thought, okay, I can't believe he thought that. I can't believe she thought that. I can't believe he did that. God sees. And God is right there as we're committing those sins of thought and sins of words and sins of actions. But we fear people more than we fear God. And so God's omnipresence gives us a holy reality check about the seriousness of sin and it gives us the strength to seek his grace to fight that sin. Rosemary Jensen in her book, Praying the Attributes of God, says this, and it's a great prayer for us all. Lord, forgive me when I think that I'm alone. You're always near wherever I am, but I forget that. You also care for all people and are with all your children in any place. I ignore that often also, thinking that I must be there to help others when you can manage their lives perfectly well. Forgive my arrogance. There's different ways we could pray like Rosemary Jensen on that. When we commit sins, forgetting that God is there. When we fail to pray and evangelize the lost, forgetting that God is present in hell. When we live for this world instead of living for heaven because we forget the special revelation of God in heaven. Or when we're trying to fix everyone else, forgetting that God is already there with them and they don't really need us, that we get the joy of coming alongside. There's so many ways that we can manifest forgetfulness of the omnipresence of God. And so the, this, rea- this truth not only gives us hope in the trials, not only helps us fight sin, but there's a reality check when we forget it, friends. We are setting ourselves up for failure. So with all that in view, flip the page. <coughs> Several questions we need to talk about in your group tonight. When we pray and ask God to be with us, since God's already there, what are we really asking? Have you ever prayed that? God, be with me on this trip. God, be with me as I go to this Bible study. What are you really asking for when you pray that since God is everywhere? Number two, if God is always with us, why does our sense of his presence fluctuate? Think about that, you know, being near or far. What hinders us from realizing he's always with us? How do we grow in experiencing his presence? Should the fact that God is omnipresent, meaning there's nowhere we can escape from him, give us hope or fear? That'd be a good one to wrestle with. This truth, what we're talking about tonight, God is everywhere. Does that give us hope or fear or both? How should the truth of God's omnipresence help us fight sin? How should the truth of God's omnipresence help us during trials? How should the truth of God's omnipresence affect how we approach our corporate worship gatherings? You know, this is, God calls us to worship together. How does the fact he's omnipresent, how does that affect what we do on Sunday mornings or even Wednesday nights? And then number seven, says no place can contain God. And since God is everywhere, are there places where we should look to try to experience God more fully? So I know you can't get through all those tonight in the next 45 minutes. We want you to still have time to pray together. We're going to do our best to talk through a few of these together. So um, tonight, as we divide up into groups again, Greg and Cecilia Till will be leading the couples group. The women's group will be with Trish, and I'll be with the guys in room four for the men's group. So I look forward to discussing these attributes more with you over the next 45 minutes.